As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The project they gave us was there's a nonprofit in Jamaica that wants to turn dried mangoes into beer. Turning dried mangoes into beer turned out to be a terrible idea. Uh, It did not taste good, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was, why don't you just sell dried mangoes instead? Fast forward to now, uh, we have just over 40,000 farmers who are in our network. Those livelihoods mean that people are making, uh, on average, seven times uh, the local daily wage. From the Fox 6 studios, this is definitely Milwaukee. Conversations with the movers and shakers that put our slice of Wisconsin on the map in the worlds of entertainment, business, sports, and more. I'm Carl Deffenbaugh. Imagine working with tens of thousands of farmers around the world who rely on your company for their livelihoods. And then imagine handling all that at the age of 23. Josh Scheffner is the founder and CEO of AgriCycle Global, a Milwaukee-based group that helps women in Africa and the Caribbean produce dried fruit that is then sold here in the States. While you may not recognize the name, it's an incredible story, and Josh takes us through how a college project at MSOE turned into his life's work, including an honest assessment of the pressure that comes with that level of responsibility at a young age. There are truly amazing stories of the lives they've changed, where the company goes from here, and how you can try apparently the best dried pineapple you'll ever taste. Let's get to it with Josh Scheffner. Very happy to be joined by Josh Scheffner now, one of the more uh, accomplished 23-year-olds I think you'll come across, and excited to hear your story, Josh, and all the things that you're doing for some truly amazing people throughout the world. First of all, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Carl. So for people who are not familiar, the, the larger company is AgriCycle. There's a number of sub-brands that folks here might be more familiar with, a Milwaukee-based company that has roots all over the world. How best would you describe what you do, what this whole endeavor is? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, before even introducing the names of the brands and companies, I think the basis of what we're doing is that there's lots of fruit that goes to waste every single year on rural farms across the world. There's over 2.8 trillion pounds of food specifically that goes to waste every single year. And 95% of all the waste in sub-Saharan Africa happens because of food loss. Food loss happens between the producer and the market, meaning farmers invest their time and money into these products, but will never see a return on that investment because they can't get it sold. So what we in general do is we come in with simple technologies that work without electricity, sell them to farmers, train them on how to use them, and then buy the products they create with our technologies. So those products that they create, uh, that's where we start to have our own brands. The Jolly Fruco is you know, one we're really excited about. Uh, the family of fun, ethically sourced, sun-dried fruits, fully traceable from tree to shelf with Find My Farm QR codes. So that one, you know, we sell in the United States. We sell a sustainable charcoal. Uh, but the overall, you know, umbrella of everything we're doing is called AgriCycle. 
Very cool. Um, like all good things, especially when it comes to Milwaukee, apparently has some ties to starting with beer. So why don't you get into how this all started for you as a, as a college student at MSOE? Yeah, 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 definitely. So originally, you know, it was, it was like two weeks into to me in my first year of school. Uh, I was in the honors program. The project they gave us was um, there's a nonprofit in Jamaica that wants to turn dried mangoes into beer. Um, in order to help farmers make more money by selling the mangoes that would go to waste. So that, you know, the principle of the idea started there. Um, but it was a very Milwaukee solution, obviously. <laughs> um, turning dried mangoes into beer turned out to be a terrible idea. Uh, it did not taste good. Uh, it made no sense logistically. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it was, why don't you just sell dried mangoes instead? Uh, and, you know, you have to do things to make it special. You have to make sure you're not adding sugars, preservatives. You have to make sure it tastes good. <laughs> you have to make sure that there's something unique about it. So we made it traceable to the exact farm that it comes from. And you can read that on the QR codes. But, you know, overall, the, the idea shifted from how do we, you know, make this arcane creation of alcohol into just the core of the business is really a supply chain. So it, it's getting product from rural remote farms uh, across the Caribbean, Latin America, and Africa, and getting them into marketplaces globally. Hmm. It does seem like it's such an interesting thing when it comes to some of these companies that it's about connections. It's about simplification. Like you said, you can't rely on all the electricity or power, you know, other things, resources that we have here in the state. So what is the actual process and how much are you guys able to, to salvage for a lot of these farmers around the world? Two things. The the general principle behind, you know, the engineering or design of what we do is called appropriate technology or appropriate design. It means that you're designing for the setting or the, the circumstances of the end user. So we don't necessarily optimize our designs on our dehydrators for drying the most fruit per square inch. Um, you know, we're, we're not focused on quickest drying time. We're focused on meeting the farmer's needs for exactly what they need. And that's primarily based on ensuring quality food safe products that the FDA then approves. That means that we have to have a system that can be disassembled nightly, brought inside, cleaned, um, that it's you know uh, uh, airtight as far as all the entrances air is not supposed to come through. Um, so, so all those things together make us design something that I mean, it's not the most optimized for drying. So that, that's just kind of a unique part on, you know, the, the design of them is focused. It's really special that we focus on, you know, this appropriate technology side of it compared to just, you know, an engineering projects probably would just try making it dry the fastest. It started a few years ago, again, as a college project that's kind of grown and grown and grown. What are you guys up to now in terms of the number of farmers you're working with around the world, the number of people you've been able to impact, and, and how much product you're able to bring to the States then for all of us to try? In 2019, uh, the summer of 2019, we went to Target Incubator. That was super exciting. Uh, at the time, we had right around 11,000 farmers in our network. Um, Fast forward to now, which is about a year and a half later, uh, we have just over 40,000 farmers who are in our network. That's over 200,000 people if you're including their family members. Um, the, the number of livelihoods that we've created and supported so far is just under 7,000. Uh, and those livelihoods mean that people are making uh, on average seven times uh, the local daily wage. And so that generally nets out to be between 15 to $20 a day. Wow. 
I just want to kind of like give you a round of applause for, for, for doing all that. Did you have a background even going into school or something like that with an interest in humanitarian work or where did that all start for you? Yeah, um, I went to a leadership summer camp when I was in high school called Premier Illinois Boys State. And there's a, you know, there's Badger Boys State in Wisconsin. Um, so I, I was originally from Illinois, but I'm definitely a permanent transplant here. We'll forgive and so, you. Yeah. And so that that's where I originally got this like hyper focus on, I, I was very interested in politics and public policy before, but this leadership camp helped me kind of see that there's a more actionable um, approach I can take to basically like making an impact or, you know, that common, I want to make an impact thing. I can actually do something. So it pushed me toward engineering because I didn't want to write policies that did or did not get taken up or at least every four years it would get taken out by whatever administration came in next. So, so I, I wanted to do something that was more permanent and that's what led me to study engineering. And the idea was to become a humanitarian engineer um, to work with Engineers Without Borders, which is a fantastic organization that I had an experience with um, for multiple years in the student chapter at MSOE. And that was where I really, you know, honed my experiences uh, globally, as well as understood and actually practiced appropriate design. And that was really, you know, the playground for where I was able to grow and help build AgriCycle. One of the interesting things I read uh, prepping for this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd never been out of the country until kind of all of this started. So what have been some of the experiences that you've had? And I imagine that's incredibly eye-opening to come from Illinois or come from Milwaukee and go to some of these rural villages, these farms, and see what these people are, are living through and dealing with. Yeah. So the, the only times I've been out of the country are to have traveled to these rural farming villages and, and do work either with Engineers Without Borders, which was one trip that I was on, or, or all the other times I've gone with AgriCycle. Um, there's... In northern Uganda, um, the uh, culturally the Acholi is the largest subgroup in northern Uganda, and they have, largely speaking, there's a tradition of planting mango trees uh, when you start a new family or when you build a new house. And th these are traditional um, mud and thatch houses. They could build concrete, but it's actually just better for ventilation to use mud and thatch. Um, but uh, what's really interesting to me is that they plant mango trees not to grow fruit to eat because they have plenty of fruits when the mango season comes around but that they grow it for shade and they grow it as a as a cultural tradition that means that they have natural organic mangoes every single tree produces up to 3,000 fruits a year we we did a say um 95 of all people uh in the three communities we surveyed in northern uganda have more than seven mango trees. So, you know, basically everyone has more than seven mango trees. That means that everyone has 20,000 mangoes a year that, you know, they're, <laughs> they're not able to eat those. So that's just some of the crazy things that um, we see. That, I mean, it's so interesting of why they do it, but it's also like, that is the opportunity for them. Um, Northern Uganda is also one of the most uh, impoverished and, and uh, economically depressed areas that we work in. So that's a really special connection that we have with them through the mango trees. Yeah, very different experience than a lot of college kids studying abroad in like Paris or London or something like that, right? Um, how, how difficult is that, it, coming into a new area, trying to build some of those connections and creations and show that you really do have their interests at heart? You are trying to better the overall families and, and villages there versus what they may think of you first coming in, per se. 
there's definitely a, a history that we have to overcome when we work in communities. Uh, there's, there's a tradition almost of American and British groups coming in, promising lots of things, and then, you know, those, those Americans and British people get home, pat themselves on the back that they changed a life, and then, you know, they're never seen again. Um, it made it so that most single trips that we did they you know paid attention they they heard us out but there's never any like they didn't believe that we would ever come back again basically which made it very hard for us to set up deals in the beginning when we showed up a second time and i i traveled to uh uganda and kenya in both november december and january of 2018 so i came left and then came back again the the response was just massively different the second time um, and, and the basis of it was that like they came back, which already put us in the, you know the five the top five percent of, of who goes in the first uh, the first point, um, and that that really affected a lot of stuff. I, I'd say the other thing that was very affected or, or that that we use that's different is that we treat the farmers as genuine equals. And if you look at economically. If, of course, that's not the case. You know, the, the amount of money I might spend at Chipotle is the amount of money that one person might be able to earn in a month if it's not a good month. But we treat them as equals in terms of bargaining power and in terms of um, literally just speaking with them. There's a lot of nonprofits that we met with and that we originally learned from that would tell you that you need to change the way you talk or communicate with a, a community and you need to kind of walk on eggshells when talking with them and make sure that you don't overcomplicate things and that you make it clear that you're coming to them in a good way, et cetera. It was very patronizing, basically. It was, was our take and, and what farmers felt. Our approach became, you know, why do anything different than exactly what it is? So we show up to a community, we pitch them, hey, we have these dehydrators, they cost this much. This is what you're able to do with them. This is how much we'll buy your fruit for. You have to meet these standards. We'll offer this training. Would you like to do this or not? And farmers responded to that massively. And so the 40,000 farmers we have is almost entirely word of mouth because we just treated the farmers as people with agency able to, you know, decipher <laughs> a basic proposition and, and make a decision on if it makes sense for them or not. So I think that was a really key difference and, and, a big experience I learned from from engineers without borders compared to a lot of other nonprofits that are out there. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's very well said too. Any specific story or, or moment that comes to mind that you're particularly proud of or, or just really has stuck with you over the years? I would say I would say it more stuck with me. Uh, not sure still still six months later processing how I feel. So we took our entire team to uh, our entire US-based team all in Milwaukee to Kenya uh, for, well, to Uganda and Kenya for Mangocation. So Mangocation is our like, annual retreat, basically. It's, it's not a work retreat. We're all just sitting around on vacation. The, the whole time we are working, meeting with community members, uh, tweaking our model, um, uh, meeting with global partners, we, ministers of agriculture, et cetera. We are in Northern Uganda. Um, and there was a community that when we visited them and, you know, there's a traditional dance presentation, there was speaking from multiple community leaders. Um, they presented a bunch of gifts to us and it was four chickens, 
um, uh, uh, reams of bananas and, and a few other odds and ends basically. But um, that community in particular was one of our newest communities. I certainly did not have the resources before us working with them to be giving away chickens. And knowing how much those chickens cost, they had spent half of the money we had paid them on these gifts to us, which said two things. Number one, that it's working, that they, they are getting money and that the women are maintaining control of it. It wasn't their husbands who came and, and gave us the gifts on their behalf. It was the actual cooperative members. And number two, that that they saw the relationship as being that important to, to gift away essentially half of what they had earned in the past two months. Um, I'd say I'm proud and I am of, of that we've created that relationship and that impact. It was also just very interesting because I knew that that was half the money we had given them. And I was only two months in, but still it, it was, we didn't need those chickens necessarily. So, yeah. Yeah. And you, you don't, you're uncomfortable with that, but you know what that means to them far more than it means to you in, in that case as well, I think is fair to say. Right. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. that yeah. even sooner, the specific focus on female farmers, on women farmers in many of these areas why is that the push and what are their circumstances that are even different than some of their husbands or other male farmers in those areas? Yeah. So, you know, to, to start with in Kenya, I'm going to butcher the, the second digit of the number, but it's something like 83, 85% of the agricultural, sorry, in Uganda, um, 83, 85% of the agricultural labor, labor force is women hmm. in Kenya. It's something 60 something percent. Um, despite the fact that women are the majority of the labor force, whether it comes to planting, sowing, reaping, whether it comes to uh, uh, bringing the, the fruit to market to sell it, men own over 90% of the land um, in, in most of the areas that we work in. That is a massive discrepancy because for the most part, you get paid based off of who owns the crops, not off of who does the work. You know, it's not an idea of, I put 80 hours in um, this week, so therefore I get, and you put in 20, so therefore I get 80% of the profits of what we sold. It's, I put in 80 hours a week uh, for this work, but because you own the land, you get to sell it and you control the distribution of the money. So that there's, there's a very large discrepancy basically in who does the work and who is the one A, able to sell it and B, who controls the money once it comes into the household. For what we do, we focus on supporting the just, you know, on average, the actual labor force uh, w within these uh, industries in, in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Liberia. Um, and, and we focus on creating direct relationships with the people we work with. So we're not paying to an existing bank account. We support each woman who joins our cooperatives in creating their own independent bank account. We help them get established with microloan credit. Um, we help give them financial literacy training through partner nonprofits. Um, and, and so there's a lot we do in, in specifically empowering the people who are actually just doing the work and we make sure we pay them. So when they're drying the fruit and when they sell it to us, we make sure that it goes directly to them. There's a massive change in, uh, in power dynamics just based on who ends up getting paid. Um, and so that's just one small way that we're doing it. Um, the reason why we're doing it is because it's who's doing the work. I feel it's only fair. Um, and that if we are to be working in the areas that we are, and we know that if we were to just pay into the family account, 
there's a good chance that it wouldn't be given to the person we intend to, you know, we have an obligation to make sure it's going where it should. Interesting. Uh, I'm sure you probably get tired of answering the young CEO questions, but it is astounding. You're 23 years old and you're uh, speaking like a very well-seasoned uh, leader at this point, which I guess you are already. What have been some of the challenges of taking all this on fresh out of school and during school? And I imagine there have been moments where, when it's been daunting, where you're kind of teaching yourself on the fly, but you do have lives and businesses and families at stake. Yeah. Um, I mean, most, I, I, I burned out, um, uh, you know, actually a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to say it was a month ago, but it wasn't, it was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I, I just felt all of the pressure and, you know, the, the email inbox picking up and never able to get it back down. Um, and, and, uh, the, the fact that, you know, right now we're raising money, we're selling products, we have, inventory that's pushed out, but POs that, and POs that have been sent out, but the cash hasn't been received. So, I mean, there, there's everything from cash flow to, to how the employees are doing, to the fact that it's the holidays and people want and need to take breaks and should. I, I just felt it crash down. Um, I'm not sure that's because I'm a young CEO. I think that's, you know, I, I think a lot of people experience that. I'd say my difficulty with being a young CEO has been that I haven't experienced these cycles before. So for the most part, it's, you know, my first or second time experiencing like what it's like to have employees around the holidays at the same time that you need everyone to be working um, and, and how to manage that. So there's, there's been situations, I mean, over the past two years that I've really been full time at this, that it has felt like it, it can actually get beyond me. There's been times where I've been like, am I the right CEO still? Is it time to bring in somebody 20 years experience in agriculture and an MBA to, to come in and lead it? Um, I definitely, you know, at, at every time that's come up, it's been from my team, from our investors, or, or just reality that it's not yet at least. And that, that there's still a lot of the actual leadership and like vision setting that um, and communicating it <laughs> that, uh, that is more primary right now. So, so we're still in the startup phase and, and I think that's where I, I play the best right now. I think it's hard to, hard to argue that anyone will care more than you having grown this from the very seedlings all the way up to what it's become. And I'll say I've had plenty of moments of burnout this year, especially, and I'm not a CEO and don't have all those responsibilities uh, <laughs> and much older than you. Um, could you ever have imagined when that college project started that this would become your life, that this would be what you do probably 24 hours a day or think about no, it? I, <laughs> I, I wished that it would. I kind of thought about it. Not, not right away. Certainly not right away. Um, probably halfway through that first year, I, I really, something clicked and I saw that there was a model here, not just a project, but that this was a larger thing that could be expanded on. And I thought about that and I thought it would be a great nonprofit to put on the side and to support and that college students could be the one to do the same thing that I was doing and continue to grow it. Um, there are so many iterations of that model and we ultimately fell backwards into being entrepreneurs for profit social enterprise and, and doing what we're doing. But um, I'd, I'd say until I actually went full-time, I wasn't confident that it would be what I was able to do full-time. So no, there, there was not that confidence of this is what my future is 
I wanted it to be. I dreamed that it would be, but I, I still didn't think it would be possible. Yeah. It's, any ideas what you'd be doing now if you hadn't gone out full time with that? <laughs> um, ostensibly, I should be a structural engineer right now. Uh, I, there was a company that I was working with um, that I absolutely loved, worked in precast. I, I had a lot of fun with it. For all we know, that's what I should be doing. <laughs> but right now, I'm not. <laughs> that's funny. Um, you mentioned the pandemic a little bit, or maybe I did. How has that changed things for you? Because obviously for everyone, it's changed this year, but you guys were kind of in the process of getting things off the ground. And given that, I mean, farming can still continue, you can sell products, whether it's online or in grocery stores, essential places like that. How has the, the pandemic changed or shifted the, the challenges for you? You know, on the agriculture side, we were fine. When it comes to training our network of farmers, though, that became a difficulty because we had essentially, you know, we have large field teams in all the countries we work in who are employees and shareholders. Um, they travel from village to village to village, training cooperatives, double checking on their processes, making sure everything's going very well. Essentially, you have somebody going from a city to a rural remote village and then back again and, and going, you know, spreading out like, if, if you were to pick somebody to spread a virus, it would be us. Yeah. Not so, <laughs> so, so we had to roll that back and shift to putting as much training as we could through bulk SMS. And, you know, again, like low bandwidth technologies, it's worked really well. It's actually allowed us to expand our network even faster because our field officers now just have more time. So we're, we're actually going to keep what we're doing there in the long run. Um, so, so, so we were affected there. I would say we were more affected on the market side. You know, the first product we launched was in April. That was our first revenue gener generating product in the U.S. So we don't know a pre-COVID uh, uh, business, basically. Um, it completely disrupted how we thought we were going to get into retail stores. It shot up on e-commerce, but at the same time, we weren't fully prepared for it at the very beginning. So, you know, we've caught up then. Things are going very well. We launched our subscription model. Um, but yeah, there, there's, there's definitely been a lot of disruptions there. On our actual supply chain, though, that's gone incredibly well. Um, it's the strength of having a distributed network of farmers, which most other agriculture, you know, it's mono, monoculture on single plantations where it's mechanized and a machine goes up to a tree, shakes the tree, the fruits fall into it, and it's all processed by the time it gets to the next tree. That system works until that single farm has a difficulty getting it out of the country because roads suck or because the truck drivers there have to get through a checkpoint that takes an extra three days and the fresh fruits aren't capable of that. So for us, us having a distributed network of farmers, when some farmers were affected, many others weren't. And so that meant that we actually were able to pick up business and take advantage of a lot of like, missed opportunities by other companies. Um, so that certainly helps. Uh, the, if I could just mention also that it's, it's, I would say the most disappointing thing is that sampling hasn't been able to happen as much as we want to. And we haven't been able to like, get in front of people. Um, we, we can be on video and everything, but we haven't been able to actually share physically what we're doing as much. So we launched a 10,000 smiles campaign in Milwaukee. And um, that was awesome, amazing fun. The idea was basically to give away 10,000 bags of our Jolly Fruit have people nominate um, uh, others. We're donating to uh, NPS. We're uh, donating to hospital systems, et cetera, and just really trying to like share what we're doing. It's a difficult time. It's holiday season, season of giving, and just the whole thing makes a lot of sense. So 
that's that's a really fun program that we just launched. Well, let's let you pump some product then, because yeah, like you said, it's kind of all about taste when it boils down to it. So, yeah, exactly. what are the fruits that are available? Where can people track you down? And if you have a favorite of uh, of the bunch, I know they're all your babies, but what what would you recommend <laughs> to people to try? Yeah, definitely. So we have three flavors right now. We're actually coming out with fruit of the month. So you know we'll have crazy flavors, flavors like rambutan, pumpkin, kiwi. Um, so that's a pretty unique thing. But our, our primary three are mango, um, uh, pineapple, and jackfruit. So you know of those three, you're probably most familiar with dried mango. But I'm telling you, you've never had dried pineapple like ours. It's the most incredible, sweet tasting thing. Um, it's definitely the crowd favorite. Uh, it's, it's also become our most ordered for, for returning customers specifically. So I would absolutely recommend the pineapple and the jackfruit's really interesting. You know, some people who are familiar with jackfruit, which is a superfruit, um, are familiar with it in like the vegan meat replacement side of things, which it's prepared differently. Ours is actually a lot more juicy. Um, uh, it's got this great flavor. So it, it's a fun, like specialty fruit that we're trying to make more, you know, just normal. So, and people can either order it through your website or find it in stores. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, on Amazon, uh, you, you can look up Jolly, which is J A L I. Um, you can go to our website, Jolly fruit, J A L I fruit.co. Um, and, and you can set up all the different packs. We have subscriptions, discounts, all those things. So, um, yeah, those, those are the easiest ways. Uh, we're also in multiple stores in, uh, in Wisconsin, um, in, in Milwaukee specifically. So on our website, you can find that as well. Neat. And then uh, you mentioned there's charcoal, there's like alternative flour. You guys are going to continue to kind of come out with more and more here, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the basis is that, you know, we've built this network, right. Of all these farmers and we've now created one vertical, which is dried fruit, but there's nothing stopping us from, you know, using that exact same supply chain, which took money and time and infrastructure to, to create the infrastructure. Now we can plug in other products along that same supply chain starting with taking, you know, after you dry a mango, you have the pits that are left over. So we take those mango kernels and we grind them into a flour and they can be used to bake cupcakes. Um, we take the shells of coconuts and we carbonize those and turn those into sustainable charcoal. Um, and so those are launching next year in a few major retailers that we can't announce yet, but all across the Midwest. Um, so that's very exciting. That's tropical ignition, which I actually have right here. Um, comes in a, a uh, fully recycled sustainable box, carrying handle. We have the small size, the big size. But yeah, there, there's a lot of things that we're bringing through our, our supply chain. And that's the larger ag recycle working there. Cool. Well, you maybe answered it right there. My last question was going to be kind of what are you excited for in the future? Where is this all going to go from here? Uh, obviously, it's hard. It's long hours, but it seems like this is incredibly satisfying, incredibly rewarding for you as well. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, I'm, I'm most excited for when we have farmers not just doing one line of our products, but when they're taking the byproduct, when every byproduct of the first dried fruit is used as something else and that we're purchasing that as well. I think that's the ultimate version of, of what we're doing. Exciting to see. Well, congratulations. Thank you for sharing so much with us. This was a, a fascinating conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much.
Thank you once again to Josh, and maybe that jolly fruit could make the perfect stocking stuffer this holiday season. Thank you as well to the two people you don't hear from behind the scenes, Dave Machuda and Sarah Smith, who do so much to make Definitely Milwaukee possible, as well as the other podcasts from Fox 6, the investigative team's open record. If you want more from either podcast, please make sure to leave us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform, or you can find the latest episodes anytime at fox6now.com. 